Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This week we have author and musician Anthony Papalardo of Adult Inc. He joins us this week for another Classic Records episode. Papalardo has written about everything from skateboarding to hardcore music to urban lifestyle. And uh, to date, he has two books out, Live Suburbia and Radio Silence, A Visual History of American Hardcore. I've known Anthony since the late 90s when I lived in Boston, and um, he was a founding member for two pretty big, seminal Boston hardcore, sort of second wave Boston hardcore bands, uh, In My Eyes and Ten Yard Fight, which were, um, I remember at the time, they were like hugely influential on the scene. And uh, so, I don't know, we stayed friends all these years, and uh, here he is on our show. And if you've been paying attention for the last several months, you'll realize that we sort of think out of the box when it comes to classic records. We don't go for the obvious stuff, so instead, we're going for something that actually packs a little bit of a personal impact to us. So we're going with Garage Days Revisited by Metallica, 1987 EP of covers. The significant thing about this is not only do they do a really cool job of making these songs their own, it sort of opened up a whole new sort of horizon of different types of music to get into. Some bands that actually would become my favorite bands over the years were introduced to me on this record. If you like this uh, episode, please share it. Once again, thanks for listening and enjoy the next episode. Going through Metallica's uh, catalog in general, it was like thinking back to like when I discovered that band, and I'm like, I totally forgot that I got into them before they were this thing that people had. Like they were so divisive. Yeah. Like I don't like this era. There's not enough. Like I heard them before Justice, so there wasn't the like. There's no fucking bass. Like they were at that time. Like it was something I anticipated. Like. Cliff's dead. What are they going to do? Yeah. Well, there was you know? no errors. There was just the the band. Yeah. And and totally. they were, you know, on the rise. And, you know, they were just a very um, sort of current, crucial band, and especially in metal. And the way this record ties in, it's like one of the... They, they awakened the whole interest I had in the Misfits and Glenn Danzig. Sure. Oddly enough. You know what I mean? Because I saw photographs of, you know, James and Cliff... You know, Cliff had that, you know, Misfits shirt. Mm-hmm. I saw James with a GBH t-shirt. And, you know, prior to my uh, listening to Metallica, I'd obviously been into punk rock and hardcore and stuff. But GBH and Misfits were bands in, at least this is like the 1980s, when it wasn't right. like you could just type in punk rock music and like a million bands show up. That those bands actually were bands that weren't necessarily uh, on my radar. Ironically, you know, being, you and I both being East Coasters, uh, the Misfits being from New Jersey, I didn't really hear about it until I saw James Hetfield wearing a friggin', you know, Misfits t-shirt. Yeah, I I think this was like, this was coming in the moment where I'm like really, I'm diving into uh, punk, you know, punk, hardcore, metal kind of all at once, you know? It, it just was kind of like the same thing. Yeah. 
um, and skateboarding. And so because of the skateboard mags had a lot of great music coverage and, you know, the metal mags, I had subscriptions to a bunch of metal mags. Like I just wanted any piece of information. And so the crossover was super interesting because Pusshead's linked to Metallica, Pusshead's writing for Thrasher. Um, and it just started, I, I think, just to backtrack, what I always thought was cool about Metallica, regardless of their music, was that they were really happy to show you their influences. They're always wearing t-shirts of other bands and like that. That was still in an era where like bands wore get-ups or if they wore t-shirts, it was of their band. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right, like Dave Mustaine and Metallica, <laughs> you know, like Megadeth. There was the faux pas of wearing every member wearing a Megadeth t-shirt in their video. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So seeing these guys like wearing like a Gastonk t-shirt or Septic Death, that was pretty pretty cool to me. And then how it parlayed into this record, because I think, yeah, because before that, getting like the EPs that had like, you know, Am I Evil or whatever, I was like, these guys are like, it's pretty cool that they're like, dig I mean, they're digging for covers, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I guess, so this one specifically, I want to say, like, I think, hopefully my timeline isn't skewed, but I had a subscription to Rip Magazine. I just remember because it came out and it was super cheap. It was like 10 bucks or something. And uh, I think it was either there, like Metal Maniacs or something, like reading that like they're working on this new thing with the new bass player. Um, and that's, I think that was like really all, I don't think there was much information, you know, that they weren't getting coverage even on MTV at the time or anything. No, that was way before the one video. Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, when most fans felt sort of uh slighted because metallica vowed never to make a video and all this other right. stuff but you know that video was like you know, six and a half minutes long this like epic totally depressing song yeah. very brutal like subject matter so i think it justified you know them making a video with that song yeah in mind. yeah if they were gonna do it they went for the bum out so yeah. I'll, I'll give them that which is almost <laughs> it's it's funny it's almost the inverse of say like you know poisons every rose has its thorn because right one is a ballad but it's like the darkest ballad i've ever heard ever you know what i mean <laughs> I, I remember at that time too when that song got popular you'd hear it occasionally in really fucking awkward places because it's like someone would feel obligated to play it or something it's like like a school dance like oh, what yeah. The fuck? yeah then the, the brutal part at the end comes yeah. up yeah it's like dj's trying to cut it but um yeah i remember seeing advertisements for for this record uh for garage days and probably being one of the few records i remember getting when it came out oh i you definitely know? did because the time when it came out i was like hugely into them and now mm -hmm. the time it came out it was 1987 and uh, the record was the uh, Garage Days, uh, five ninety ninety eight five ninety eight. Yep. Okay, because on iTunes it's actually five ninety nine. There's an extra cent thrown in there. Isn't that funny? Inflation calculator. It's Isn't crazy. that funny though yeah. that it's five ninety nine? Yeah. <laughs> Same. It's also known as the nine ninety eight CD, because you know CDs were like a new format back mm -hmm. then too. Uh, released on Elektra and Vertigo. Vertigo being their UK label, recorded at the A&M Studios in Santa Monica, California, and Conway Studios in LA. Now, this oh that that line I just read off there about uh, production always 
blew my mind that this throwaway record, like, well, it's not a throwaway record, but something that was done uh, purportedly on the cheap, you know, sort of like lo-fi, was still recorded at two studios. Oh, yeah, and it was... uh. I was digging into a little bit. It was like some leftover time from a Ted Nugent session or something. <laughs> Just pretty incredible. I mean, I don't even think I died. To me, when I heard it, I probably read the liner notes once, and I am just assumed, like, they did it in their garage. That's what <laughs> I thought, too. Yeah. For, like, probably 20 years, I thought they mm-hmm. recorded it in Lars Ulrich's garage. You know, I think, to be honest, I'm going to be completely frank that while preparing for this episode, I, to this day, thought that they recorded it on like a like an 8-track or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> what's most uh, important about this, though, is um, is this Jason Newstead's first recorded material with the band. Mm-hmm. And it uh, consists of covers. And what's even more insane is that for a record that is all covers, it, it charted number 28 on the Billboard. Yeah, so I think... The backst- what I had read, because um, I remember reading tons of articles when this came out, because there was actually like a big PR push. You know, they, they were being pushed by the record label to do this. They're about to play uh, Monsters of Rock at Castle Donington. Record label wants them to have something, to have a little energy. And what they actually were going to put out was uh, a new song. So there was they had a demo version of Blackened. And they made this pivot and said, no, we're going <laughs> to... We're actually going to do a bunch of songs uh, and come up with this EP and this low-priced EP. And I thought it was a... Uh, it seemed like a cool way to introduce him, like a low-pressure situation. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's just sort of this... You know, back hearkening back to the old days when they were playing covers, probably in the beginning of their career as a band, mm-hmm. you know, playing some, like, you know, Tigers of Pantang covers and whatever. Right. Just grabbing a bunch of tracks that they all were you know, thought were cool. And I wonder if Newstead actually had any input on that. Yeah, I'd be curious too. I mean, you hear about the intense hazing, like would he have been scared to propose something? Who knows? <laughs> like it's pretty uh it's pretty interesting. I mean they you know, again, like I I hate to have a caveat to everything about pre digital, but I think it's more of a way to say what they did was important, how you know, Metallica and, and say what you will about Lars Ulrich, like they were curators, you know, they were, they would proudly talk about, you know, new wave British heavy metal where no one else was, you know, everyone else was, I think had too much ego to even say where they came from. Um, and I think that's really cool that they, you know, they lead into the record with this diamond head cover and, you know, cause a lot of these uh, genres that we talk about now, like they weren't vernacular then they weren't like they weren't things, you know, but like when you hear them constantly name check these bands, it drives that interest. And a lot of that stuff was hard to find then as well. Well, you know, Lars Ulrich, I mean, I know that he's a polarizing figure, um, you know, in the metal world, but I actually give him a lot of props for introducing me to the terminology of, you know, new wave of British heavy metal. Cause that's the first time I literally heard that term being used was by him in an interview. Mm -hmm. The first time I ever heard the term black metal, being used was by Lars Ulrich back in like 1985 or something like that when he was talking about Venom and it was um you know an interview I heard on the radio like on some metal shop you know WXCI like thing and um and even even to this day I mean in the last few years they had that festival that Metallica did where I can't remember the name of that but they would they would put together builds of, of current bands I feel like 
you know, they see they have always seemed like fans of music to me. Yeah, you know, I think that's like pretty authentic about that. Yeah, you know, and like even though, you know, even, you know, current bands like Mastodon and, you know, for better or for worse, some of the other, you know, selections they had on that, you know, bill that they put together, they always were, were very interested in music. And I think that's what really appealed to the personalities or personas that the band had when I was growing up and getting into music. And um, so this record, when I bought it, I didn't know, I didn't know that when I purchased this record that it was covers. Yeah, same. I, yeah. And I thought these, oh, these are like some ripping, like super raw, like Metallica songs. And um, once I discovered that they were covers, I was like, oh, this is like, it completely introduced me to all this new material that I didn't even, that was, had been around for years that I didn't even know about, you know? So let's just, you know, run down, I guess, the, sure. the track list thing. Um, like you mentioned, it, it, uh, it kicks off with a Diamond Head song, Helpless. Then it goes into Holocaust, The Small Hours, The Weight by The Killing Joke. Very important track for me. Uh, Crash Course in Surgery by Budgie. And Last Caress, Green Hell by The Misfits. Five songs. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems a lot longer. It does seem longer. <laughs> and what's interesting about the Holocaust song is the, this is what blows my mind. is That song only appeared on a live video from 1981. Right. Like that's the only media that 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 medium that that appeared in, and it wasn't until like the '90s when uh, Holocaust put out a record, um, "Hypnosis of Birds," that a recording of their own track came out, like a formal recording of it. You know, who the hell knows how? I mean, that's to like be so inspired by a song that only appears on a live video. I think is is pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, that's that's digging, and I think what speaks because that's actually that. I was I couldn't find anything about Holocaust back then. Like this is only like YouTube era that I'm seeing other tracks. A lot of their stuff is not good. It's a little like yeah, um, like that Metal Maniacs song or whatever. Like it's like it it you wouldn't think it was the same band. No, you know? no I don't want to say not good. It was it's a like this track is more of a this brooding outlier. And yeah. Well, have you heard? Have you heard their their, their formal uh, actual studio version of the song? Yeah, Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. It's a little uh, you know of its time. I mean, mm -hmm. it's actually worse yet. It came out I think in 1994, so it's a 1994 version of a song being of its time in right. 1980. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like kind of like a weird you know sort of you know vibe to have on a song like that. You know, and probably I imagine they they released their own version of it on the success of this record. I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really, what's really cool of this about this song is it's just like it it introduces you know, and again they're all covers, but it introduces this tempo that Metallica would later explore, uh, or or kind of had explored on Master of Puppets to some degree, but. Um, you kind of hear where their dynamics are. Like every track on this is informing their dynamics, you know, whether it's like a really ripping song, like helpless kind of a, like that mid tempo groove of the budgie track, um, how they can kind of get like a little dark and textural killing joke. But, the yeah, the Holocaust song, it's really, really, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird song and it was a cool choice for them. And, you know, who would have ever heard that band, you know, like, they immediately put it in the hands of uh, 500,000 people. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
probably my two favorite tracks are the Killing Joke track and that the track we're talking about, the, the Small Hours. Like, I always like the creepy vibe of that sure. record, that song. And when I heard the weight, now the first time through this record, I thought the weight was Metallica's song, you know, and. <laughs> I have enough self-confidence to say that to everyone out there and without any ego. You know, I was a kid and, uh, you know, the information sort of like oozed back to me that it was actually this band called The Killing Joke. And that, hearing that song, it sounded like such a, like the original version of it had the same spirit, but the execution was completely different. Yeah, you know right. What I mean, and um, The Killing Joke would become a band that I've drawn influence from for like the Latin, the next, since then for the next like 20 years of my life. I mean, I, they're like one of my favorite all time bands. And, um, yeah, eventually I probably would have found them, but this kind of expedited the whole, you know, went right to the point. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, here's a band. It's like Lars is like, Hey, you're hanging out with Lars. And he's like, you got to check this band out. Cause yeah. this band is like the shit, you know, it had like, there's two really interesting things about this record. One, it had that like personal touch where it felt like you're like, you know, the, the cool older dudes kind of passing some knowledge down to you. And then also it's the recording itself is like, you know, I, I, I'd thought about this beforehand. Anyone who's ever done a band and they're so fucking psyched about their band, right? It's the best thing they've ever done. And they hang the mic from the rafter in the ceiling and you blaze through these songs and you think it's the greatest shit of all time and you put it on and it's it's always bad yeah you know yeah, like, it's just mono recording of like a yeah. fucking room like yeah. this is like the dream version of that like this is what you when you put that tape in and you when you, when you hit play after that like you want it to sound like this yeah like in your in your mind this is what you're making yeah, this record exactly you know? like you're doing covers of the do or whatever you know yep you know it's funny man that, that was like uh step two i remember in you know, one band I played in years ago when we both lived in Boston, it was like, okay, we had our first practice. Step two is buy a boom box for, for recording. Yeah, of course. <laughs> for recording purposes. So I remember running out to, you remember the Arsenal Mall? Like yeah, out of in course. Watertown? Sure. So I had like an hour to kill before practice and I was looking for a boom box. And all I found was like, a, like the they only had these things with like a tape player and like one speaker, man. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't find the full stereo boom box. And, uh, you know, you had a cassette tape that you put in there and you just kind of hit play and record and hope for the best. Now that, even that is something, nowadays everyone's got like multi-track, you got on your phone, you can make a better recording than, uh, than a yeah. boombox. So, you know, so that technology's lost probably for the best though, I think. I feel like, I don't know. I would know some people who are a little more savvy and they'd like rig up something through a receiver so it's like two channels or something and like <laughs> it was still terrible but it was like you're like oh it's a little better it's like left and right or something you know but um yeah i mean it has that it does feel like they're all you know i know the setup is that they practice in lars garage but it sounds like they're buttoned up against each other in this room and like really tearing it out um and that killing jokes song in particular it's such a different song for Metallica. It's so it's so gripping right away. And then I think how I got into Killing Joke after that was like that song '80s was still pretty pretty big on like alternative radio. Yeah. And I kind of put two and two together, and I'm like, but I don't know how could that be the same band? Like I know they made it heavier. And then I kind of dug back, and like 
it's a really interesting catalog that band has of um the, you know the rawness of the early recordings the tempo of the early recordings then you know like a lot of bands uh getting into the 80s like maybe adding synths or different arrangements but then how they eventually land at getting heavier again which was you know as a fan of that band to hear like you know the track money is not our god after like loving uh you know the, some of the records before that and like they just come out with this like pretty like it's almost like a metal pil or something it's like yeah, really it's, cool it still has an angular sort of um you know like the angular guitar stuff going on in it but yeah. it has a lot more aggression and and you know it's funny like you mentioned that but part of me wonders if um if killing joke were referencing metallica being into them so there's like this weird circular yeah you know, like at some point, the Killing Joke, Killing Joke might have been like, you know, these like heavier bands, like these metal kids, like kind of dig the band. So, oh, some of the stuff's pretty cool. Let's like incorporate some of these influences that they produce, you know, into our music. Yeah. Also, because where else, where else could they go? Right. Like they have these like, they're not, they're, they're big in America, but they're not, ep- you know, they're not like mainstream big in America. And they have these recognizable songs. They have like these really great pop songs you know like yeah definitely love like blood or whatever it's like all right we they probably did hit, hit some type of a wall and say like maybe we should plug into like who actually likes us or like these different markets you know yeah it's at the time um you know in the 80s the a band like guys like metallica being into like a quote-unquote post-punk bands was kind of like a big deal for me because you know going back to that era of time that sort of you know, there was only punks and metalheads and they really, none of these groups really mixed very well. You know what I mean? Their kids are into like goth. Maybe they like punk, you know, metal, metal dudes definitely stuck within their, their realm. Like they didn't really venture out too hard into other areas, you know? And, um, the fact that they liked a band like that really, you know, it was really intense for me because I was like, I had, you know, I had a girlfriend who was into like Bauhaus and you know, Joy Division and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, this is like pretty cool. And it was almost like, you know, being like a young man, you know, a kid, you know, you, you have all these like barriers and these walls that you put around yourself as to what, at least I did, you know, this is okay. This fits the, uh, you know, who you are. This is what you're supposed to be into. Um, you know, that other stuff like, you know, Killing Joke, Bauhaus. Joy Division, uh, Sisters of Mercy, like stuff like that was not really, I, I needed someone to, to validate that in a way. So Metallica covering the Killing Joke song kind of validated that whole world for me. And I was able to kind of like explore that on my own afterwards. Well, yeah, because when I was, so around the time like 87 when this record's out, as much as I'm into I'm getting into a lot of things. I'm like very careful about what I show the world I'm into. Yeah, totally. You know? yep. And like, you know, before you kind of curated your social media to who you were, you curated your clothing to who you were. And that's like really how you communicated. So the real estate on your jean jacket or whatever, it's like pretty precious. And, you know, you, you know, I would actually think about this shit of like, Oh, should that logo go on? Because like that band's, you know, am I going to look corny if there's like a Motley Crue logo or something and I'm supposed to be into like heavier shit or whatever. Yeah, totally. And you would definitely not put like, 
Bauhaus or whatever. And but I remember I met this one kid in high school. This kid who transferred over, and he was like this long hair, kind of. I don't know. He was more like a sleazy hippie. Like he wasn't a good hippie. He was like an evil hippie. And he <laughs> he had this jacket, and he had had a Grateful Dead patch, a Metallica patch, Black Flag bars, and um, I want to say the cure or something else and like i remember kind of like asking him like dude like how do you how do you like all that and he's like it's my fucking jacket man and I that's, was like, that's sick that's you know awesome. it's like yeah it's like fuck like fuck you and like we were already off to a bad start you know? yeah. <laughs> like, but at that age, at that age that i wasn't ready for that kind of freedom though you know what i mean no, not it's at like all. you think that you're free in your brain you think your mind is open but you really are in this box still you know you know, forget about like jazz or whatever, you know, other things right. I've gotten into over the years too. I was like, all right, I only listened to like Black Flag, you know, and Slayer and Metallica. And like, those are the only bands I might, I might listen to X and the Germs, you know, the Chromags right. and that was it. But like when, when someone within that circle gives you that, that pass to like, okay, check this out. I listen to this shit too. And then I saw them wearing, I saw a thing was James was wearing like a Faith No More t-shirt too. Yeah, I remember that. Now, as much as like these days, people that are into quote unquote extreme music embrace Mike Patton as like, as one of us, you know, extreme music guys. In 1980s, they were, they were like the the Red Hot Chili Peppers or something. Oh, totally. Especially like the Chuck Mosley era. Yeah, totally. They were almost like. Like those were bands that would get played on like Dr. Demento. Yep. It was almost like. You know, it's a lost genre, but like like joke rock, almost in a sense, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that's where they had to... I think the other thing that's important to think of is that the music festival, especially in the United States, hadn't hit, you know, remotely where it is now. So the closest you'd get is like, the you know, these metal festivals that they're playing in Europe, like the Monsters of Rock, like that was pretty revolutionary for, for curating things. But you weren't going to have uh, Killing Joke on that festival. No, definitely. You know, not. it was still going to be very genre tight. You know, and we didn't, you know, credit you know Perry Farrell for being kind of the first one to actually modernize that idea. You yeah, know? I mean, even the Monsters of Rock in the United States, which which I went to, yeah, was like supposedly. I'm like, oh, what a diverse bill. It's got Van Halen, Dokken, <laughs> Metallica, you know, Scorpions, and Kingdom Come. Oh yeah, there's all kinds of genres yeah. of music. To me at the time, I'm like, oh, was all, look at all these different types of bands, and and I. But yet, you know, it was all these these heavy metal bands, and uh, it was really funny because Metallica with Newstead played that, and um, they went on. I think they went on second or third. Kingdom Come went on first. Metallica may have gone on second, then the Scorpions, then Dokken, and then Van Halen, and I was like right up front. It was in Giant Stadium. Mm-hmm. you know out in jersey and i was like two two rows away from the front and it was just like an insane like pit and i looked up into the bleachers and someone had lit like some seat, seat on fire and whatever and it was like <laughs> chaos man and um and jason newstead was wearing a ramones t-shirt oh that's sick yeah later that night when van halen was getting ready to play i was still fairly close to the to the front and some dude like forces his way all the way to the front he's like this like a long-haired like 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 the kind of kid like a thrash kid not like yeah. some dude is in the docking or van halen or whatever right 
So he gets up front and he's like, he's like, oh, cool, man. You know, it's like, I can't wait to see Metallica. I'm like, bro, they played like yeah, fucking can. four hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> like in his mind, Metallica was bigger than Van Halen. <laughs> I mean, if you were a fan of that band at that time, they like they were, you know, like, yeah, it was that that band like on that rise, you know, it, they're they they're like the everyone liked that band if yeah. if you liked a certain type of thing, you know? Like if you liked if you liked heavy music, you liked that. You weren't gonna meet someone who's like, Yeah, they're all right. <laughs> like they were kind of the gold standard. Um and then I think it's funny if you if you butt them up butt them up against Slayer, like Slayer later did that covers record. Um, but they were smart enough to do the club tour as well. Yeah. Which was really cool. Yeah, I was gonna bring that up actually about um well, that was like almost 10 years later, I think, Slayer. Mm-hmm. That came out in 96, that Undisputed Attitude record. But, you know, that one lacks the charm, though, I think. I think yeah. so, too. It's it's a band doing a cover EP because the cover EP suddenly became this bridge thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know Metallica loves to claim they did everything first, but that was a cover record was a pretty... Uh, interesting thing to do for for a band especially a band that wasn't fully like globally established yet yeah because prior to that cover records were like how you recorded a record when you didn't have enough songs or that the record label wanted to break you so okay you do a couple uh blues covers or whatever yeah peppermint with your tracks like sure no one's you know the beatles never did a cover record zeppelin maybe their career was a cover record but you know. yeah zeppelin to credit for a lot of stuff yeah, that they didn't write, sure. but you know, um, actually Van Halen is always good with covers too. Yeah. You know? They would always like throw in some like, yeah, that always felt like the vaudeville, uh, David Lee Roth angle or something like, yeah. I mean like <laughs> one of their biggest songs, you really got me is, mm-hmm. you know, it's a Carl Kinks cover, you know, but, but then again, you know, this wasn't without the Kinks song. You really got me was like a, a, you know, a big song for them too. Yeah. But none of these tracks were big at all. And a lot of these bands on this record were still remain in obscurity, like Holocaust, you know. Right. I mean, Diamond Head, people reference them. Killing Joke, obviously. At that, even when this record came out, still had they they were you know they had a career like sure. Holocaust, you know, known primarily for this song. Absolutely. I, I mean, that sparked their career yeah. again, I guess. You know, and Budgie is a band that heavy you know heavy rock fans know who they are, and of course the Misfits. Were are you know all, all, uh, equally legendary, but at the time weren't though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it might have been in, in between because I know like some of the stuff had gone out of print like before those collections came out and stuff. Um, yeah, you'd almost say like the Misfits were maybe of the selection the most recognizable band, but like in the time that's passed from there, I think a lot of, you know Killing Joke obviously, Budgie have become sort of symbolic of like a a style type of person you know i think like and going through of all the bands you know digging and trying to find all these bands are you know not that it was hard to find the misfits or killing joke but getting excited to find these bands and like i wanted to hear what metallica heard in them if i wasn't familiar with them right um budgie was the most disappointing i thought yeah like and quite line up and it's not uh it's not a slight to that band. It's just that it was more, it's more a testament of Metallica owning that song and being like, okay, 
with a different vocal delivery and like amped up a little much, like this is going to sound heavy as fuck and be a killer song. And you know, that's, it's one of those rare instances where I think the cover is much better than the original. Even the uh, Angel Witch track they did, not Angel Witch, uh, the Am I Evil song they did from, from that 12 inch. Yeah. Even the Metallica version of that song, I think is better than the original. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There was something about like, I think they're good at like figuring out like how the delivery of a riff can make a song like that riff in Am I Evil. It's such a killer riff. Like you hear it and you're like, I want to play it. I want to destroy things to it. But the, the original version, the diamond head version, like it doesn't have that punch, but just the way Metallica executes it, it changes that whole thing. And when they're playing together in the room and everyone's kind of like, you know, they got this energy, this new member and probably like a lot to prove. So, you know, they transform all these riffs, like the, you know, every single one of these songs. You know, it's uh, a lot of it probably could be attributed to the fact that all of these bands started out playing covers. I mean, mm-hmm. that was like, I don't think bands do that anymore, really. Yeah, you know? you're right. I think that bands... The band is a cover. So Someone was like, not to interrupt, someone had uh, mentioned this, I feel like on another podcast, uh, that that a lot of these bands start like school school science projects. Like, you, you know when you mix these two things, you're going to get this result. So, okay, we like this genre, so we're just going to emulate it so, like... There's no variables to it. Yeah. So like the band is a cover because they're just doing like loose covers of a genre or something, you know? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it in the 80s too, or like when we we probably started first playing music, you had to find four, three or four people who even liked the same shit. Oh, dude, it was impossible <laughs> yeah. almost. You know what I mean? And there'd always be like the one guy who kind of is not really on the same page. You know? Yep. I used to feel like in Sick of It All, Richie was was the guy, like the the dude with the mustache. Yeah, the oh, hair. totally. Like he was like the the guy who didn't really like, you know, maybe wasn't a hundred percent on the same page as the other guys. Yeah, like, but you'd oftentimes see like a band, all dudes have shaved heads, and like one guy's got a mustache and like long hair, you know, because he was like the guy who liked Sacred Reich or something, and he saw Sick of It All like and Sacred Reich play together or something, and then he got into like hardcore as a result of that. There would always be uh, some opening band, like they would kind of sound like AF and it would be like, you know, three or four skinhead looking dudes. And then one dude with like sunglasses, just like, <laughs> like a gold chain. Yeah. Just like, like, all right, well, you could, he can play, you know, like you had to have that guy in there. But I think Phil Anselmo, actually, there was an interview I read with him where he was talking about like his experience growing up where, you know, you had all these records in your record collection and when you listen to the band, you can hear like 20 or 30 different records in your band's sound. And he's like, nowadays, you hear like three records. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, yeah, it's also too like these, you know, we take it for granted, but Metallica's inventing a sound too, which is a lot harder to do now. So, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, like, it's, it's the same thing with like, uh, you know, there's always going to be someone who plays you a band that sounded like Sonic Youth before Sonic Youth or whatever, right? Like, someone, like, these ideas were out there in the ether. Someone nailed it, whatever. Um, yeah, obviously trying to invent a sound or, you know, hash something out from the ground up now is, you know, I don't want to say impossible. It's just, it's more challenging, you know? Yeah, there, it's definitely uh, more challenging because a lot of stuff's been done within 
you know, the, the bandwidth of this type of stuff is pretty well, well documented and traversed right now. Are there any tracks on here that stick out with you that were you know, particularly meaningful to you? I, I mean, we talked about the Holocaust uh, track. Uh, Diamond Head was a band that, so at the time, and I'm, I don't even, I, it had to be somewhat off because uh, they were like, I forget what, um, they might have been on Dutch East or something like in the U.S. or they had some distribution. But I think some level of success with Metallica made like a little discography cassette or something available. So I remember getting that because it was, they actually had it at like the, you know, Tape World. I think it was called Tape, like that chain Tape World had that, had that record. So I got back into that. Um, I think the, the ultimate standout still is the cover of The Weight. Um, it's that band flexing a different muscle. The production's like a little weird, even though the production is pretty much what it is for the whole thing. But, uh, you know, they took some some risks with it and it, it opened me up to the fact that post-punk, I didn't know much about it and I didn't realize how heavy some of that stuff was. And so it exposed me to like a different type of heavy. And I think <clears throat> had I not had a curiosity about Killing Joke, I probably would have lost out on hundreds of bands, yeah. you know? And like, just cause I think there was a, by what was getting filtered down to me through like the college radio or alternative music, it was still a lot of what you're getting is that very, um, like gauzy, pretty, more of a pop sound or whatever, you know, like, uh, whether it's the Smiths or, you know, the popular cure songs or whatever. And you weren't getting the stuff that almost is hitting on this intersection, like post-punk industrial. So just that, the fact that this like little, you know, under $6 cassette unlocked a couple worlds to me, like this new wave of British heavy metal, you know, killing joke and like, you know, like heavier post-punk. And then also, um, you know, making me want to explore the Misfits more because I I wasn't a huge Misfits fan when this came out. I'll fully admit that. You know, I probably liked Danzig more. <laughs> like, yeah, I well, I liked the way their artwork looked. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and you know, like I said back then, you couldn't just go on YouTube and look stuff up. You had to put down hard earned cash, or you have to have a friend who was into it. You know what I mean? And one, you know, it's funny because there's there's certain things that, you know, you you just would assume that your friends would have records of these bands, you know, and I can tell you, like when I was a kid, my friends had Bad Brains, they had, they had Black Flag, they had DOA, they had Ramones, Dead Kennedys, uh, Suicidal, uh, Circle Jerks, right? Stuff like X, The Germs, okay? No Misfits. No one had a Misfits record. Yeah. You know what I mean? No one had a Misfits record while we were all discovering punk and hardcore music. And, you know. So it wasn't until 1987. I saw people wearing these cool shirts with a skull. And I was like way, way into that idea. You know, the horror. You know, vampires, zombies. That's like right up my alley. Sure. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. So it's like, okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a teenager. I don't have any money. You know, do I buy this record or do I buy like, you know, uh, you know, Cause for Alarm by Agnostic Front? You know what I mean? I don't know. I go for Cause for Alarm instead because I, I'm familiar with that. 
even though there's this cool skull and there's a name like Legacy of Brutality, which is like such a killer title. But then when I heard, you know, in 87, when this came out, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is like, it, it gave me, it passed like the first test for me. You know, the songs mm-hmm. like had a sound that I understood and I was familiar with. And then I went and I bought Legacy of Brutality, which is the first Misfits record I got into. Um, and I, and, and, you know, obviously I was into that, you know, a little bit different though. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, and it's funny because now you just take it for granted. Glenn Danzig and the Misfits are synonymous, but I was like, oh, this kind of sounds like that guy Danzig. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, oh damn, it's the same dude. And then of course, oh, that was Sam Hain, you know? And it's like, I mean, this is like the, the, the primitive times that we lived in back then. Sure. You know, and, and, it's primitive. Yeah. You're just, you're. If you don't have access, like if you don't even know what a zine is, like the best intel you're getting is out of a metal magazine. Yeah. And that's like not, you know, it's not the highest quality writing. It's no. not the most well researched. No, definitely not. You know, um, I think it was cool that they did, they did a song with both sides of the Misfits. You know, like I thought that was really cool because because then I got Earth AD first, mm-hmm. and then. I think the reason why I didn't get super into the misfits, like the energy just wasn't going is like, I'm like earth AD. This is fucking amazing. And then I'm like, well, I got to get something else and uh walk among us. It's like two entirely different. Like it sounded like so much like oldies. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> in yeah, a way. It had like a very, you know, Elvis kind of evil, evil Elvis vibe to it. You know, same thing with legacy too. Yeah. You know that, that those two records, those are my favorite misfits records though. Oh yeah. I like the evil, the dark Elvis, you know, that's like totally. my, my total, you know, that whole like midnight ride kind of vibe that they had back then, you know, and that's, and I even like the Danzig songs that actually have that, like Sestinas, like that song, the song's beautiful, man, you know, and like, I, I appreciate him mostly when he's doing those kind of ballady, like, you know, swan songy type, type songs, you know? Yeah, that's really, his lane. Yeah. That's definitely his forte, in my opinion. See, like, I think also too, like at that age, you know, you're like 13, 14, whatever. I'm still like charging forward. Like I'm still Sonic the Hedgehog. Like I just, I'm like, what's faster? What's heavier? What's darker? What's this? Like a lot of times along the way, you hear something that you recognize as great, but you don't run with it. You know, like then a little later, you're like, shit, I want to listen to like the first four Ramones records and like dice, like now, like I, I live by those or whatever. Um, or a lot of, I think, when you're in that zone, you, maybe you hear a lot of British punk. It's like some of the greatest stuff. But when you're looking for like, you're like, there's got to be something heavier than the Chromags. It doesn't exactly like resonate, you know, right away. Like you, you get in these little paths, I think. Yeah, yeah, I never really dug British punk until much later in my life. Like I remember, you know, when the word punk started coming into my like, ver- you know, my mind, my vernacular, people were talking about it and I was understanding what it was. Um, you know, check out the clash. Now the clash, honestly, in, in 2019, looking back at the clash, I'll have to say the clash were not a punk band. No. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, but in 1985 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they, they were this self-proclaimed punk band, but I don't think that, you know, discharge thought the clash were punks. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think maybe in a, you know, when they formed an ethos, but like, they're also there, there's those bands are like, they're coming over from pub rock. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. So it's like, it's kind of a little, 
it gets a little blurry as to you know what the intention is and what you know i don't know they have a couple just like any of the bands of that era they have a couple like fast-paced songs and they have a lot of songs that are influenced by like reggae music and stuff and it's like you can trace that the speed is the ramones like the ramones come over and that changes everyone will admit that you know um the imprint of that band they almost go underrated in what they in what they did yeah well for me the ramones were probably the the ramones were the first punk show or you know punk rock show i've ever went to ever and um that changed everything for me seeing the ramones and discovering them because like there was one you know back when i was 12 13 i think there's these older guy this older guy mike katz who he was he was like the cool guy the coolest guy mm-hmm. you know he played drums he's an incredible drummer like he was always like two steps ahead of everybody on like what music was happening and he was like totally into metal right long hair you know he had the whole look down but then like he went to california one summer and when he came back that year, the, the following school year, his hair was gone. He had, like, dyed blonde, you know, earring, leather jacket with the Road to Ruin, uh, you know, Ramones album cover on the back. And now now everyone had to be in the Ramones because Mike Katz was in the Right. Ramones. He was leading that news. He was leading. The <laughs> meeting. And then I'm like, oh, I, I have to check this out now because Mike Katz is listening to them. <laughs> and I have to figure out, like, where I fit into this whole continuum of music. And they were like, at that time, the fastest, most like extreme band I'd ever heard. Right. You know? And then shortly after that, the mixtape of one side, um, group sex, the other side, uh, first suicidal record that started making its rounds. And then the pay to come seven inch. And then the, the, the cassette of mixed, Bad Brains records, big all this like stuff from like the Roar cassette that we dubbed and started passing around to everybody. But yeah, it all starts with the Ramones for me, man. Totally, you know. Yeah, I mean it's they're they're so they're so obvious that they're underrated <laughs> in what they do. You know, it's like they're just such an iconic thing. But again, like you step back into any of these into any of these bands, you know, like. The, they're the originators of these things, you know, like when black flag starts to really change and get weird, they're the originators of a punk band doing that. You know, when Metallica is kind of fusing a couple different things and coming up with this style and, you know, it's cool to hear how it was informed, you know, and uh, to kind of go back, I think what's interesting in this record, it comes out at a time where no one could predict how big they're getting and where the ride was going to go. And as of you know, as the thirteen-year-old version of myself, or whatever, whatever the fuck age I was, fourteen, I'm like, I live and die by this band, and that and that the ride fizzled out pretty quick for me after that. Yeah, after <laughs> yeah, that that was because let's ask the timeline of their career though. That was before Injustice for All came out, and yep. Injustice for All was like the big. That's what blew them. I feel like they blew up on that record. Absolutely. Like they were headlining yeah. like coliseums and stuff. You know, I remember they played at like the Worcester Centrum or something. And, and it also is when SoundScan actually comes out. So oh. they actually, their records are like charting where they should be. You know, it's yeah. like it's changing how, because before these are like guesstimates. They're pretty much just like buying chart positions. Oh, okay. So I now I, I believe it was, I believe it's Justice. Uh, I would hope. 
I would not want to be wrong and say it was the Black Album, but I believe there was a shift in the industry of how they're tracking records and like early sound scans coming out. And that's why like they're, you can't deny what they're doing because they're selling so many, you know? Yeah. But prior to this was uh, Master of Puppets and they were still like opening for Ozzy yeah. and they were doing, you know, like playing places like Lemoore's and stuff during mm-hmm. that, that part of their career. So this record kind of bridged, you know, I mean, the tragic death of, of James, of um, uh, Cliff, Cliff Burton, you know, bridged the, the old version of the band, the kind of first four years of their career or whatever, first like, you know, six years of their career into like the mega stardom, you know? And it's like a nice sort of bridge to show like, okay, this is like where, what our roots are. And then a year later or what? 80, 88 is when did, um, Injustice for all come out. It has to be 88. It was 88, right? Yeah. yeah. Then that record comes out and then suddenly they're everywhere. Video, mm-hmm. headlining, big, big-ass arenas, you know what I mean? And then ever since then, it's just been like... And it's kind of funny, like, you know, there must have been some, you know, I hate to project, but, like, there must have been something in this process where they're learning these songs, like, as tight as they can, like, probably listening to the originals. Um, when you listen to Injustice For All, this is almost like these, the roots of these songs are like the blueprints of all the things that happen in that record. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I think, uh, other than a couple slower songs on, um, master of puppets, it's in the same lane. And that's why it's a great record. Cause it's just like unrelenting. Then when they, when they want to slow it down and do these brooding songs, cool, but it's, you're not getting like a, a big variance. Whereas justice is like, it's almost a different band from song to song. Yeah, there's a lot of dynamics on that record. You know what I mean? And it's, uh, I mean, where does that fall for you as a fan of Metallica and Justice for All? I would be fucking lying if I didn't say I love that record when it came out. Yeah, me too. I loved it. I didn't care about the bass or the production, like everyone's saying it was thin. I wanted to hear it so bad. So I'm like, yeah, you fucking play me Blackened. I'm going to love it. You know, like... uh harvester of sorrow like i just i'm there i'm in it you know and 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 also the other thing too like if i'm ranking it it's not my favorite <laughs> you know what's your favorite um that's maybe ride the lightning actually <laughs> yeah I, ride the lightning's it's either it's between ride the lightning and justice for all for me mm-hmm. yeah i mean the, ride the lightning's got the most i think sort of epic songs on it you know they're like the, the ones that really you know, like for whom the bell tolls, man. Yeah, creeping like death, like. creeping death, man. For whom the bell, I have when when I say to for whom the bell tolls, I go back to that time I saw them at Monsters of Rock, and when they, yeah, there was like, I felt like I I felt like I was in danger when I heard that yeah. part, and yeah. just the reaction of everyone was this like vehement like intensity, man, and um, that you know obviously is on uh, Ride the Lightning. And and prior to seeing him play that song, Ride the Lightning was still my favorite band because it had similar dynamics, I thought. I think there was a lot of dynamics on that record. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I've, the other thing, too, is like there was the, mo- you know, it's not like uh, fucking Beatlemania, but there was some kind of like underdog shit with Metallica getting so big. Yeah. Because it was kind of like, Oh, you thought I was a fucking dirtbag for liking this band? Now you're playing in your Camaro. Fuck you. Yep. You know, and 
and then I'm excited to see them. And they were doing a lot of, um, at the time, radio's getting really behind them. And they're replaying live shows of them. And because of that, <clears throat> there was one show in particular. Uh, I got a live show of them, taped it off the radio, sounded super good. And that was like my bargaining chip to tape trade. Nice. Through the through the back pages of um I think it was Rip. Yeah. So I like I got the the No Life to Leather demo by trading this thing. Cause it happened to be a set where they did a lot of rad covers. So I think they even did like Bread Fan before they did like a recorded version of it on there. Um Diamond Head cover, Blitzkrieg. Um, I forget what else, but I just remember this being like kind of a like when I would tell people the, the set list, they're like, fuck, I need, you know, that's like my bargaining chip, you know? Yeah, and I got man. some cool stuff out of that. I actually got a bunch, I got a tape of a bunch of New York City hardcore demos as a throw-in from this girl in New York City that I traded this demo, to uh, this live recording to. And she was like, yeah, if you like hardcore, check out all this stuff. So it was like raw deal, breakdown. Oh, and cool. I'd never heard, you know, I had no point of reference almost for it. So, I mean, it was a cool, it was a cool thing, but... Yeah, to see, it was, there was a lot of energy behind it. And then they're doing their, you know, like, that's their real headlining tour after that, where the stage falls down. And you didn't know, it wasn't on, you didn't get a heads up, the stage is going to fall down, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, you know, it's 2019, you know, Metallica, household name. You know, we think of them in the same way we think of, you know. Alice in Chains or Soundgarden or any of these mm-hmm. big bands, you know, but it really was when they, no one could, could project that they would become as big as they did. And it also was a win, sort of like you said, for yeah. the underdog, because, <laughs> you know, it, James Hetfield wasn't Vince Neil, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, he wasn't any of those people. He wasn't even Axl Rose, you know what I mean? And Axl, the success of Guns N' Roses, I felt was more predictable. Than, oh sure. Then then Metallica becoming huge because you know there there was like um, you know there was a passageway for them to get there. It was a path. There was Aerosmith. There was bands like that. American hard rock bands. But Metallica, thrash, extreme music. You know the the sort of melding of you know punk and metal and all this stuff together was destined to remain in this subterranean world. And then Metallica became such a huge mainstream force it almost is like if the chromags had actually become yeah you know a massive band it was the same kind of thing almost in a way the, the other thing too that goes i think underappreciated and, and because people have so many feelings about metallica they don't get credit for just opening up a model for for bands like for bands playing heavier music being the first band to do that and show the power behind it you don't. You probably don't. You know, Pantera doesn't go on to the success they have. Um, I would even argue that a lot of uh, things that maybe happened, even like I don't like it, but like Corn or Slipknot, like if you don't open that door in that way and put everyone on notice, it's like that changes the course of music, you know. And because it was really, you know, 1987, the biggest bands on the radio are like U2. Um. Still Bruce Springsteen, you know, like in is Aerosmith's comeback is starting around yeah, then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, Pump and um, Permanent Vacation. Permanent Vacation. <laughs> Molly Crew's still big. I mean, in contrast for Metallica to break through, especially with 
this weird ballad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty striking. And uh, yeah, it, I think it opened up, I think it showed the world, it showed that there was a need for something. And then if you think of, you know, what comes off that, it's like, you probably don't even have an Ozfest in a weird way. Yeah. You know, and Maiden being big too was different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Maiden was like, you know, with Bruce Dickinson, there's a fencing, you know, it's a fence and they had this like, <laughs> air of sophistication to it. You know what I mean? And Metallica was like dangerous music. It was like, you go deep into the underworld with them. You know, they, they wrote about their material, their subject matter, their songs are about, you know, war and death and, you know, darkness and just alienation and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it was speaking to people, I think, who were coming out of that Reagan era. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it added like another wave, another level of that to, you know, the consciousness of people before they got into the 90s, you know? Yeah. And I think the fact that for better or worse, they, at least like they were trying to best themselves and they were trying to challenge themselves. And, you know, it was kind of cool that like this EP was a little bit of like a, like a refresh, like a reboot for them. Uh, it's like, get back to what started the ride and then to come out, you know, swinging with that record and, and pretty much just take over heavy music is pretty, it's really impressive. I mean, you know, the fact that, some promoter was like, the only way we can have Guns N' Roses and Metallica touring the same world is if they do it together. <laughs> it's fucking insane. Yeah. You know, you know and, 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 you know, just as a, a sort of ode to Cliff Burton, who was the heart and soul of the band, really, too. I mean, I attribute a lot of this stuff. I attribute the five of these songs that are on this EP. I feel like in a way cliff if you know if you've read um to live is to die like the biography about cliff burton you know he kind of was the guy who like steered the whole band really mm-hmm. you know i mean sure sure lars was into like new wave of british heavy metal but uh cliff was the architect i think of in- injecting like punk and, and hardcore into their sound and you know having this like street level sort of savvy that you know these five songs i feel are also like an ode to Cliff Burton, you know, and his influence obviously sure. extended onto um, the Justice for All too. So I mean, apparently, he wrote a lot of that material. The, one other thing too is that I mean, when something like this big happens, it's, it's sometimes even hard to contextualize it because you've lived with it for so long. Um, the impact Metallica's, you know, like probably around Master of Puppets and a little, you know, going into Injustice for All what it had on hardcore bands, you know, because, and like, and like Harley Flanagan's been like super frank about it. He's like, I felt like it was some fucking metal motherfuckers playing hardcore, but they were doing it so fucking good. You know, we were jealous, you know, like admitting and then, you know, and then other bands, you know, trying to, trying to, they're seeing some, uh, similarities, but they're not understanding like how differently informed this stuff is. You know, whether it's the vocal approach or the riff construction, the dynamics, like it is a lot different than sort of like your blueprint uh, New York hardcore, you know? Yeah, it's, definitely. It's, yeah. I mean, the subject matter of the songs, too. I mean, but then again, Metallica, like I said, they covered, they, were, they got pseudo political, you know? They got, yeah. talk about war, they talked about all this stuff, you know? 
Yeah, but. no, it's just it's an interesting. I don't know. I think like the like the best bands are, you know, comprised of individuals, and then they coalesce as a thing. And I I do think you get it's a pretty eclectic group of guys. I mean, you you know, especially you watch that documentary, you're like, how the fuck do these people even form a band? They couldn't be more different, you yeah, know. Like, yeah, definitely. You know, like you can maybe see like the egos that drive it, but like something had to even get those egos to to spark, you know. Um, and so to have it come out in this really original thing, and then right as they're they're clicking, they're at the peak. Like for them to kind of be a little humbled and step back and put out a record, and and really in a sense, like give a hand me down to the fans of like, look, like this is what we like. It's a pretty cool, that's a cool thing to do. It's a cool move. Totally. You know, it's funny just going back, um, onto other classic records episodes that we've done, you know, these, um, they might not be the, uh, obvious choices for a lot of people, but I think that what's it's turning into is which the classic records, the hall of fame is more about what's, meaningful to you or to us or whoever, you know, was on the show at the time. And, um, you know, like for example, we did mob, you know, not mob rules. We did, uh, heaven and hell by, by Sabbath, which mm-hmm. is like, some people don't even call that a black Sabbath record. Right. Right. You know what I mean? And to follow suit with that, this is, you know, this garage days, uh, EP, the 598 EP. Um, I, I just wanted to underscore how important it was to me and to get that, even though I love, you know, there might be other Metallica records that most people will consider to be classic records, but on a personal level, I think this is like a very impactful sort of five songs they could have done. Yeah. I mean, to contextualize it for me, like this is the advent of me going back into music. I like, like that was the lesson I learned from this. And that's something that carried out, um, you know, throughout any time I liked a band wanting to, go further you know like that that chain that i don't think exists as much anymore just because there's been so many things that have happened but to actually have a genuine curiosity to be like fuck these dudes like diamond head this is a ripping song like i want to know what that is like you know and then whoa diamond head's on a compilation with these other bands what are what's angel witch like you know what are these bands like um and then going through like pretty much every band I discovered from there wanting to know their roots. Like, so that was a pretty, it's a, it's kind of a heavy thing when you're like a teen, you're a teenager, you know? Cause like you see it, like, you have other friends at the same time. Like who gives a shit? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Most yeah, of my friends yeah. didn't give a shit yeah. because, and furthermore too, like mentioning these bands, like in 1985, it's almost like being on the flat earth or something like that. Yeah. It's like, I thought, <laughs> You know, okay, there's Van Halen, there's Aerosmith, there's ACDC, you know, I was starting to, you know, uh, you know, Deep Purple, uh, Judas Priest. That could have been, that could have literally been it. Like, sure. that could have been the only bands that made that kind of music to, to me at that age. You know, it's like, you know, there was like a record store in my hometown called the Book and Record Store, literally. Right? <laughs> they had a great, whoever bought their records was whoever the buyer they had a they did a great job they had but it was like like i said the same way that no one had misfits records they had ramones they had sex pistols they had motorhead you know they had deep purple they had sabbath all the sabbath albums right mm-hmm. they had the iron maiden record you know records you know but 
that literally could have been the entirety of the hard rock universe to me at that sure yeah so when i've just when this came out it's like well they don't have this at the at the book and record store right so it's like this weird i have to go somewhere else now and figure out how to get some of this stuff yeah what i mean yeah where do you get these things like yeah that's a cool it's a cool journey you know like and and also just once again you know i know that i'm probably significantly older than a lot of the listeners out there now these are the primitive times the Stone Age that world that I come from. I mean, I feel like I came out of a cave. You know what I mean? I feel like I was like communicating with like cave paintings at that point, you know, wearing like a loincloth or something. But this was the reality of the world is that you only had this tactile experience. Yeah, I mean, the one, the one thing I do, I do remember from this time frame uh, that I touched on before about like starting to get into tape trading is... This idea that I would trust some entity, whether be it some ad in a heavy metal magazine for all I know could be a fucking Ponzi scheme, that I'm going to put money in an envelope, I would cover it with tinfoil, I don't know why, so it didn't look like cash or whatever through the envelope, <laughs> send it somewhere with a letter, and then some amount of time would you know, Usually elapsed, a long time. Like a long-ass time. Yeah, yeah, like a month or two would happen and you get something in the mail. Yeah, something appears. So it was yeah. like, uh, you know, whether it was like a fanzine or some import cassette or something, but that, you know, it, you almost felt like once the money was gone, nothing was coming back anyways. So <laughs> if you did get the shit, like, that's great. <laughs> that's know? another crazy thing is like how many times back then did you put cash money in an envelope oh for sure yeah there was no paypal like cash app none of that stuff you know what i mean i didn't have a checking account when i was like 16 you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i just said cash you know that's it <laughs> i mean i like i think like the the last thing i'll say about why this record's important and not just like metaphorically of like you know everything when you're young is pivotal because it's like you're you're so green it's the first time you felt it you you remember the first everything right but then when you if you can look back on it and hear those things or you know you read uh literature and you understand like it wasn't just the moment it was like why it was good um i like when someone who creates something lets me into their world and why they did it and i think like this cover record is like emblematic of that in the same way, to parallel it, yeah, I can be on YouTube and play a PIL song, and then it'll play a Faust song after it. But if PIL says to me, we were informed by this Faust record and this Can record, and then I can hear that in the band, that makes me more invested in whatever I'm being exposed to. Yeah, there's context it, to it. Yeah. yeah. And like that context, especially them, for them to do it in live shows... In interviews, on record, and visually by always promoting other bands, I think it's like a really cool, it's a cool world they established. And, you know, something that they revisited later on when they did the expanded Garage Days and, you know, added more covers and stuff too. Well, thanks for joining us, Anthony. And um, thanks everyone for listening out there. And uh, we'll see you uh, soon. Or you'll hear us soon. Take care.
You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world. Exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more. Down the river.